behind the shades. Yes, and uh, that is an element of comedy, the surprise, the reveal, you know, the, the word you're not expecting. Absolutely. And you know what? How Actually, you know what? How big is comedy? Like, how important is comedy to you? Uh, well, you know, I started in the fourth grade, told my first joke, everybody laughed, including the teacher. And then 12th grade, they had a talent show. Nobody had ever done stand-up before. This is 1975, kind of at the beginning of the comedy club boom. That's about Tom Leno went out to, you know, let everyone those guys went out to LA. Uh, then my mom forced me into four years of college because that's kind of how her family is, you know, big on education. And she goes, son, I don't care what you do when you graduate. You can be a goat herder for all I care. But you're going to be a goat herder with a degree. So then I moved to San Diego. There's a branch of the comedy store there. Okay. Did my first open mic, thought to myself, I'm home. And then a year later, went on the road for 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. Wow. How did you, um, how did you survive that? That's a lot of days on the road. Well, I was with my girlfriend who came with me and then became my wife shortly thereafter, who's still my wife to this day. So we were sort of the June and Ward Cleaver of comedy. You know, we're vegetarians, we work out, we go to bed early, don't cheat on each other. You know, it's kind of an odd. <laughs> and then uh, I did some, radio, did some radio after that, came off the road okay. back to Raleigh radio. That lasted about 18 months. I took a number one morning show, drove it to number six. Didn't just drive it in the ground, drove it in the middle earth. And then I began doing corporate comedy after dinner, after lunch, which pays a ton better. And did that till 2007 or eight, making stupid money, uh, yep. corporate, because I was clean. They paid a lot of money for clean comedy. And then the recession and we, the speaking business dropped off 80%. We filed chapter seven. That's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Mm. And ironically, that was the beginning of my career as a speaker who was funny, not a funny speaker, because I, not too many years after that, started speaking on suicide prevention, which is what I do today. Perfect. That's that's quite the journey, and I'm glad that you are able to join me today to, to speak on it, because mental health, <laughs> to me, is something that we definitely need to speak more about. And I like that you're doing it in a way where you're kind of adding your humor, but you're talking about a serious topic as well. Yeah, the humor, actually. Somebody asked me, does uh, being a comedian hold you back, you know, from getting a gig? Talking about, no, no, they hire me because they want the lived experience, you know, my experience. They want the education on suicide prevention and the, the fact that I can, you know, organic, funny stories, personal stories. They love that because, you know, there's a reason they call it comic relief. If you're going to talk about suicide for, you know, 45 minutes, a giggle along the way makes it easier to digest. Absolutely. Like you're talking about a very serious topic and you don't want people to come from a high to a low and then walk out the door thinking, am I suicidal now? <laughs> yeah. Also, you know, uh, people have a, a vision of what somebody with mental illness looks like. And I have two of them. And so when I'm on stage, obviously high functioning, a comic, you know, seem to have it all together. I'm a great actor as well. Uh, it sort of changes their perception of what mental illness looks like, sounds like. Mm -hmm. It's like back in the yeah. 70s, people would tell me, I don't know anybody who's gay. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> you just don't know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how um, 
And that's a good point. We tend to say, okay, you know, if a person is homosexual, heterosexual, or whatever it is in between, yeah. they have to look a specific way. It's like, no, there isn't yeah. a wardrobe that you can put on, <laughs> right? Yeah. There isn't, you know, a, a pair of shoes, a pair of pants. You know, we just dream up these images in our head, and they're not necessarily true because I remember telling someone that um, based on the stats, there's one in four people that are relatively questioning their sexual identity, right? So I told him, so if you know a hundred people, do the math. The person yeah. was like, I don't, I don't, yeah. The person's like, I don't know anyone that's gay. I'm like, no, you haven't been told. <laughs> they, yeah, yeah <laughs> and I've had people say to me, I don't know anybody who's mentally ill. Oh, yes, you do. You walk by them every day, probably. You just don't know. Yeah, they've never, yeah. they've never told you. And people with mental illness tend not to tell because you know don't don't want to burden other people. And I mean, they really can't do anything about it and, you know they're liable to say something stupid like pull yourself up by your bootstraps you know yeah, yeah don't, or, don't the, or the best one is keep your chin up yes like, exactly like, like that's the problem your chin wasn't high enough <laughs> or choose joy well unless you're talking about dishwashing liquid <laughs> that's not really a choice for me don't you think Absolutely. if i could have chosen joy i would have done it decades ago <laughs> Yeah, it's like people, they make it seem like people actually walk around saying, you know, today I'm going to be miserable. Tomorrow I may be happy. Well, and I've had people call me on it and go, you know, depression, it's kind of trendy. Are you sure you're not just, how'd you, how'd you know you're suicidal? The taste of gun oil was a big tip off, uh, which usually staggers them back a step. Well, you know what, let's um, officially get started. I want to welcome everyone to another episode of Behind the Shades. I have my good funny and very experienced friend here, Frank. <laughs> and Frank, why don't you introduce yourself officially and let everyone know a little bit about who you are and what you do. I am the mental health comedian. I speak on suicide prevention, either as a workplace health and safety issue or a college health and safety issue. I started out as a comedian in 85. I did stand-up comedy full-time. I've been doing stand-up comedy, I guess, full-time for 35 years. Um, First eight, 10 years, stand-up comedy, some radio, then got into corporate comedy. And then mid, uh, probably 2014, 13, 14, I got into speaking. Um, so I went from a funny speaker to a speaker who was funny. And I speak on suicide prevention, you know, with humor, uh, not jokes, but funny personal stories. Uh, like, I, you know, I, in my keynote, I say, I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. And I pause and go, spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger, which gets a nervous laugh. And then I go, look, a friend of mine was in the audience not long ago, never seen me keynote. And I said that sentence about not pulling the trigger. And he comes up afterwards and goes, hey, man, how come he didn't pull the trigger? And I go, hey, man, could you try to sound less disappointed? That kind of, you know, humor, organic, mostly poking fun at myself. So, and that's what I do. I And I, as you probably see behind me, if you're watching this on video, <laughs> I coach TEDx. I've got about 15 TEDx coaching clients. I've got five TEDx talks myself. I'm probably going to nail a sixth one here pretty quick. All on mental health, one aspect or the other. So how is um, how important is mental health to you considering what you've gone through? Well, it's it runs in a family. It's called generational depression and suicide. Uh, my grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days and I'll spare you the scene, but if you want to know, it's in my first TEDx called A Matter of Laugh or Death. 
and it is it is horror movie awful. I mean, it's especially at four years old. And I have two mental illnesses. One's called major depressive disorder, better known as depression, which lasts three days. Some people last up to two weeks and recurs like a flat spot on a wheel. It just goes around. It's a cycle, generally not situational. I've been most depressed and suicidal at some of the best times in my life. It's just that's major depressive disorder. And I have one that's more rare called chronic suicidal ideation, which means for me and people in my tribe, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. The story I tell is my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicide. It's always option C. It's just a coping mechanism we were born with. The, the upside of that, by the way, because I tell that story every time I keynote, every time I've spoken, except for once in the last six years, there's been somebody in the audience who has chronic suicidal ideation and they're unaware it has a name. They think they're just some kind of freak. And I had a young woman come up to me after a college presentation. She goes, thank you for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, but I got to tell you, it made me weep. How did it make you weep? She goes, well, you know your story about the car, get it fixed, buy a new one, kill yourself. She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I, I didn't know there was a name for it. I, I just thought I was some kind of freak completely alone. And then I heard you say that. And I realized for the first time in my life that I'm not in fact alone. And I wept. That's my why right there. That That's my purpose and my passion. When you come across situations like that, like that experience must have been eye-opening because there's probably so many people that you yourself will come in contact with that maybe aren't as courageous as that woman to come up and say that, you know what, Frank, this is what I've been going through. I've been experiencing mm. this my whole life. And you raising awareness now is actually helping me because you'd want, I'm guessing ideally you'd want someone to have that aha uh -huh, yeah, oh, yeah. to it in their early, earlier on versus later on in life. Yeah, because they may not make it to later on in life. My feeling is for a lot of these people, I may have steered them far enough off the path to suicide that they'll actually live a normal life. And and to that end, um, I was in Billings, Montana. It was dusk. I'd just spoken. It's starting to snow. There's a river nearby. I can hear the water. And it occurred to me, I'm sort of like that character, George Bailey, and It's a Wonderful Life. I've been showing what these people's lives might be like if I weren't there to go, hey, you're not alone. And my next thought was I can't kill myself because if I did, I would take all those people who never got a chance to hear me reassure them they're not alone with me. A friend of mine goes, you can't live with that? I go, no, dude, I couldn't die with that. So now I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned um, it's generational. Yeah. Has there, has there been anyone that maybe including yourself that has tried to, is it like a cycle that can be broken or is it just something that continues to happen from generation to generation to generation? Well, I'm the only one I know of that's actually suicidal. Uh, my sister has depression and anxiety. Pretty much everybody, my, they're more nuts in my family than there are in a squirrel turd. Uh, but none of them have the suicidality. My sister and my first cousin have depression and anxiety, panic attacks and other relatives have other issues. I'm, I just happen to be all, the only one who was blessed with chronic suicidal ideation. But I got to tell you, it's actually, I consider it my superpower. And here's why. A lot of people don't understand that 
suicide is not so much about wanting to kill yourself as it is wanting to end the pain. And so knowing I could pull the trigger or open the door and the exit roll on the plane at any point and jump allows me to stand a great deal of pain because I know I can make it come to an end in a, pardon the pun, a flash. So it, the chronic suicidal ideation actually keeps me alive, ironically. And touching that a little bit more and expand on why do you feel that it keeps you alive more now and you feel more alive because you know how to end the pain, but it allows you to endure a lot yeah. more. Yeah, a friend of mine said, if it hadn't been for my chronic suicidal ideation, I'd kill myself a long time ago. Because if I wasn't aware that I could end my life at any point and the and pain began to get really bad, um, for a lot of people, the, one of the issues with depression is if you haven't lived with it all your life or realized you had it, you you tend to live in the immediate, in the moment, in that pain. And, and they say to themselves, it's never going to be any better than this. It's if it's going to be like this the rest of my life, I'm just going to go ahead and end it. Well, I have a cycle of three days. I know when I begin to spiral down, there's an end to it. In three days, I'm coming back up the other side. But sometimes people aren't aware. And also the suicidal thoughts, you know, I, I know I can end that pain at any point. I recently, uh, we had a wildfire nearby and I was downtown and I got a, I don't know if you've ever been lived where they have wildfires, but they have three levels. They tell you, they send you a warning. Number one, get ready. Number two is get set. In other words, get packed, ready to roll. Number three is go. Don't look back. Don't take anything else. Just get out. And I'm downtown 25 minutes from the house. There's a wildfire a mile and a quarter from my house. When I left the house, we were level one. I figured, well, I got time to go downtown, do my appointment, come back. They skipped over level two right to level three, get out. Well, we have 11 rescue cats in the house and we're like the Marine Corps. We never leave anybody behind. So I'm driving east toward our neighborhood while the entire rest of the population over here is driving west, fleeing the wildfire. I'm driving into a wildfire. And a friend of mine said, well, you uh, could have died. I go, look, I've been trying to kill myself for decades. B, he goes, you could, you could burn up. I go, no, that's no way to die. I have a handgun. If the, if the flames are licking my toes and it appears I'm going to burn to death, I'm eating a gun. I'm not burning to death. So being willing to, to take my life at any point allowed me to drive back in the neighborhood, rescue 11 cats. Besides that, you know, if I died, rest, don't you want to die doing something just magnificent? Well, what was he doing when he died? He drove back in the fire to rescue his kikis. <laughs> They'd be talking about me for, you know, years around here. Yeah, you'd be the local hero in your neighborhood. Yeah, there. the S you know, the local SBCA or whatever probably put a plaque up to me for, you know. So Yeah, build, build a monument in your honor and then go from there, right? Yeah, and I had an issue last February with trolls online. I did something they took umbrage at. And I mean, they came after me. I had to change my home phone number, deactivate three social media accounts for a little while. And I got phone calls. Um, I got one call uh, from a guy who says, I know where you work out. I know when you work out, I'm coming to kill you. I said, well, okay. I said, um, but know this, I've been trying to do that for four decades, good luck. And number two, I don't wanna die, but I'm not frightened of it. So make sure when you're doing your calculations, your mental calculate, calculate that into the equation. So do you really wanna take on a guy who has absolutely nothing to lose? And he never showed up. So 
again, my superpower. Do you think, um, like you, you add the humor? Is that part of your superpower, as you as you mentioned it? Like, that, does that help keep you going as well? Well, I think, and I did a TED talk on this called "Mental with Benefits." Everybody I've ever met who has mental illness, who's not completely dysfunctional, has some other really amazing talent—singers, writers, comics, magician. You know, they they have something else. And I believe that my comic ability, imagination, you know, uh, um, and so forth, uh, are simply the flip side of my depression, thoughts of suicide. It's all the same wiring. So, you know, it's, I can teach you to write stand up. I can teach you to perform stand up. What I cannot teach you to do is process information the way my brain does. And I believe that's because of that wiring that is both the depression and thoughts of suicide and, you know, the imagination, comedic ability, you know, and so forth. So it's, it's all part of one. I, I, in my, in my TEDx talk, I said to the audience, look, I don't think I'm broken. I believe I was made this way. And the, the point of the talk was, if we could convince kids, young people, yes, you have a mental illness, but you know what? Here's what adults never tell you. You have some mental ableness that your peers can't touch. I would wager right this minute. And sure enough, every time I talk to a parent who has a child with an issue, ADD, ADHD, dyslexia, I go, well, so what do they do really well? Boom. You know, he's amazing at this or that, or, you know, whatever it happens to be. So I, I, I just think, I don't believe I'm living with a genetic mutation. I believe it's an, a, an amazing evolutionary adaptation. It's a dangerous one because if it gets out of balance, you know, and you, uh, it, I mean, I came awfully close to taking my life. So, you know, but I do believe is, it is a, you know. Is that what happened? Like when you decided to attempt this, this suicide, right? Because you mentioned um, you've had other family members who have died by suicide as well. Yeah. Was that a moment that you felt that, you know what, I don't have anything to lose. That's there. That's that imbalance coming up to the surface. And now you're in a situation where you have the gun in your mouth mm -hmm. and you make your decision to either pull it or not to pull it. Well, yeah, I had nothing to lose. And uh, suicide alley is a three legged stool. Leg one is social distancing. You distance yourself from other people. Leg two is you have made the decision. You can take your life. And leg three is something called burdensomeness. You firmly believe, irrationally, by the way, you firmly believe that the world would be better off without you. You know, that everybody you know and love, people say it's a cowardly act, it's selfish, not from the inside. It's selfless from the inside. I firmly believe the world would be better without me because I had a million dollar life insurance policy. If I pull the trigger, my wife is restored financially. She's broken hearted, but she's got a million dollars. The problem was, the reason I didn't pull the trigger is the rational part of my brain goes, how long have you had that policy? Because my brain knew you have to have it two years in a day. Otherwise they don't pay anything on a suicide. After two years in a day, they pay the million bucks. So I had to call my insurance agent and find out. And I'd only had the policy 22 months. I had to wait two months to pull the trigger, which obviously I had no problem waiting because I knew at, the, at two months in a day, I could easily pull the trigger. Fortunately, I don't recall that day. I don't, it, must've eased up a little bit and just enough to let me sail past that day without thinking, Oh, it's day 61. Where's that gun? So that's what kept me alive was I was not going to leave my wife broken hearted and broke. I was going out, you know, 
I've said in jest before, look, if you're going to kill yourself, I mean, you're dead set on it. Pardon the fun. You know, don't jump off an overpass or stand in front of a train and, and give the engineer nightmares for the rest of his or her life. Put on the bomb vest, go find some jackass who deserves to die, wrap your arms around them, then pull the trigger. <laughs> if you're going to go, take some <laughs> jackass with you. So, yeah, so it wasn't that I, it didn't have a second thought because, you know, sense of humor or, uh, you know, people I've leaving, my, I, I was gone. If, 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 if that policy had been paid up, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. I work with someone in my position who um, would come in contact with someone that is starting to pull away socially, is starting to distance themselves. We're starting to have these thoughts. What would you suggest that someone like me would do to help them overcome it? Well, and here's the reason that that offer is a good one. Eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. They want somebody to step in and help. And nine out of 10 give hints in the last week leading up to an attempt. Again, they obviously want somebody to step up. So what you have to do is you have to know what the signs of depression are. Because people say, you know, I never, he never gave any indication. Oh yeah, there were indications. You just had no idea what you were looking at or listening to. For example, a uh, symptom of depression. I have trouble getting out of bed in the morning, but kind of rallies in the afternoon. Eat too much, can't eat, sleep too much, or can't sleep. Um, they let their personal hygiene go. This is, the, if you're watching or listening, not watching, what I'm wearing is sort of Zoom casual or COVID casual. But if you tune into a Zoom, and the person is usually pretty well put together, you know, you, you notice their hair's a little dirty, the clothes are a little dirty, it may be because they're depressed, have trouble dragging themselves out of bed in the morning, to shower and run a load of watch. I talked to a woman yesterday. She says, you know, Frank, I got to tell you, I've, I oftentimes go a couple of days without a shower. I just cannot drag myself to the shower. So those are signs of depression. Now, here's what you don't say. We've already talked about this. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? Uh, if you think somebody's depressed, what you should say is, look, I'm here for you and I mean it. I know you're not crazy or lazy or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. Here's the good news. With time and treatment, things will get better. I'll take the time. I'll help you get the treatment. And then here's the big one that nobody likes to ask, but is necessary. Are you having thoughts of suicide? And if you can't ask that question, you find somebody who can ask that question. There's an old wives tale that you should never mention the word suicide in front of somebody who's depressed because I love this, because it would give them the idea. Suicide, what a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? Trust me, it's crossed their mind. Okay, let's say you suspect they're suicidal, but they're not forthcoming. They don't say they are, how would you know? Well, uh, talk about death and dying. You catch them Googling death and dying. Death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork, their music, their writing. They're, they're getting their affairs in order. They're giving away prized possessions. That's a big one. Because they want to make sure those possessions go to the people they're going to go to, you know, when they're gone. If somebody comes up to you and gives them their favorite brand new PlayStation. Like, uh, dude, uh, <laughs> yeah, that or give away a pet because they want to make sure the pet's taken care of. Here's a counterintuitive one that's extremely dangerous. They've been depressed forever, and then all of a sudden they're happy for no reason. And, you know, you're happy because finally they're happy. Well, they may be happy because they have chosen time, place, and method of their suicide. And they know the pain. There's that word again. They know the pain is finite. So they're happy. So 
let's say they do tell you they're suicidal. What do you do? What do you say? Well, you ask them, do you have a plan? If they say yes, what is your plan? If it's detailed, time, place, method, you need to get them on the phone with Suicide Prevention Lifeline or in England, the Samaritans, you know, a, a counseling service. And if they won't pick up the phone, you pick up the phone. The volunteer on the other end will do their best to work the phone into the hand of the person who's in crisis. In the U.S., they've got a text line now. You text the word HELP to 741741. There'd be somebody young on the other end texting. But younger people tend to be more forthcoming in text. And the course question comes up when you call the cops. If they're an immediate danger to themselves or somebody else, you got no choice but to call the cops. Now that in most states is gonna buy them a three day involuntary hold in a mental health facility with no shoestring or belt, but they'll be alive. They may not speak to you again. They may unfriend you on Facebook, but they, but they will be alive. So now let's say they are depressed and suicidal, but the plan's not really well formed. What do you say? Well, this is not in any psychology book anywhere. It's something that a psychiatrist and I came up with. I would say to them, well, tell me, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, then this last question I think is the most important. Okay, tell me why not. Make them give voice to whatever it is that's keeping them here. My friends, my family, my animals, my whatever is keeping them here. And then as a friend, wait 48 hours, follow up with another call or text or email, whatever, however you're communicating, just to let them know you care and you're thinking about them. Follow up is very important. That's, that's, that's basically a five minute version of what I do when I keynote for 45. Add my story, you know, a few jokes and that information right there. And that is definitely helpful because I don't know of anyone directly that I've come in contact with that has had those thoughts. And you've actually put things into perspective because now it allows me to view the world in a different way and definitely pay more attention to the signs that maybe I have unconsciously ignored because I didn't know what to look for. Yeah. And, uh, and definitely yeah. for those who are listening, because it seems like mental health issues and the, the breakdown of the mental of, the, of someone's mental health, it seems like it's, escalating seems like it's increasing year after year either because more people become more aware of it and they can report it earlier on or just we're we're, we're starting to put it to the for forefronts of, of mainstream media and i appreciate you you saying that because it puts me in a situation now because as you're speaking i was like you know what over the years there was a few people that fit that criteria yeah right Somebody that they were sad that they maybe let themselves go in one way or another and mm -hmm. then all of a sudden they're very happy. So not saying that I know a lot of people have committed suicide, everyone, but <laughs> yeah. But there's people that weren't were possibly in those in those situations. And out of my own ignorance, I didn't know because I didn't know what to look for. Do you find that that's the problem with maybe people who are going through it? They're like, you know what, I'm reaching, I'm crying out to Frank in yeah. my way. He's not able to pick up on my signs. So now I fall deeper and deeper into the state of mind that's, that's, you know what, maybe I don't belong here anymore because no one is acknowledging my cries for help. Yeah, nobody cares. Nobody's going to miss me when I'm gone. You might have a coworker say, you know, next week, the company's not going to have to worry about me anymore. Well, the dangerous thing there is, does that mean he's quitting or he's taking another job somewhere, going back to college or going to kill himself? You know, it's, you have to sort of add the signs up. I was talking to a guy 
because I put my phone number up every time I speak and say, you know, if you're suicidal, call the crisis line. If you're just having a bad day, call a crazy person. Here's my cell number. And a, a guy called me, I know, a guy called me the other day and, and somewhere in the conversation he mentioned he was checking Amtrak schedules. Well, if, if you say if you say you're checking Amtrak schedules to a normal person, they figure you're taking a train trip. When he said, I'm checking Amtrak schedules, I'm like, dude, that is, I know that's a quick way to go, but you, you don't want, you're going to ruin the engineer's life because you're going to lock eyes with the engineer right before it happens. And they're never going to, they're going to have nightmares for decades. So for goodness sakes, you know, that's not the way to, because, but again, because, because of the way my mind works when he said train schedule. So, and again, you want to listen for clues. And also um, when you're asking the questions, watch their face and their body language. Sometimes they'll say one thing, but their face or their body language will give away something else. So we're taking, it's like a soft focus. You want to take in the entire being when you're asking these questions, see micro expressions, posture, you know, just how they, cause some, some, you know, people just write it off as they were kidding. They were joking, you know, who could be serious about something like that. And no, you know, you know what? Nobody ever missed me if I was going out of here. Really thinking about leaving, are you? <laughs> yeah. Taking that midnight train to Georgia, so to speak. Uh, yeah, so that, that's basically my keynote right there is, uh, that way it's called gatekeeper training. You become a gatekeeper and everybody you come in contact with, you're just kind of watching with that in the back of your mind, listening. So things begin, you know, you hear what sounds like an innocent sentence, but like, Oh, Oh, back up the truck. Did you just say, and do you mean, what do you mean there? Because again, if eight out, of nine, eight out of 10 people are ambivalent and nine out of 10 are given hints, that tells me the majority of people want somebody to hear it, pick up on it, step in, you know, and interrupt the cascade. So what advice would you give to, um, to the next generation to help prevent people from reaching that point? Because to your point, and it seems like there's more, it seems like the generation, sorry, the, the group of people that's experiencing these thoughts are getting younger and, and younger. younger and younger. Yeah. Good. So what advice would you give them? Oh, I would give this the education folks. I think we should start mental health education. Like we do physical education and sex education in middle school, because if you can catch an ailment like schizoaffective disorder in middle school, the long-term prognosis is far better. And if you, and if you, if you teach them in middle school, then they're, they're probably going to be, whether they know it or not, looking out and listening to their peers. You know, with that kind of knowledge, you know, a smart kid might hear somebody say something, they go, wait a minute, we just covered that last quarter. That, are you, uh, I've, I've got a friend whose daughter had a classmate and the classmate was struggling and was sharing some of her thoughts with the daughter of my friend. But she couldn't get her parents to take her seriously about how depressed she was. And so finally, the daughter of my friend marched down to the school counselor's office and go, look, she is going to kill herself if you people don't do something. And sure enough, the young woman had a plan. But because her classmate recognized the signs, because her mother works in the, you know, in, in the mental health, and she was willing to step out of her comfort zone and go confront the counselor and go, look, you need to do something and do it now. So I think education is part of it. 
um, evaluation. If you have a child you think is, nobody likes to think their kid is anything but perfect. But Absolutely. if they're, you know, if you, if, if, if your gut tells you there may be something wrong, get an evaluation from a mental health professional. Find out if it's just being, you know, it's just puberty or it's something more serious. And if medication is indicated, my advice is take whatever the doctor starts you on. And if it doesn't work and about, about two thirds of the time, it doesn't work or doesn't work well, by the way, a third of the people on medication love it. A third, eh, and the other third is just horrible. So there's now a DNA cheek swab test for a couple hundred bucks for psychotropics. They take your DNA and they, they match it with, let's say the two or three antidepressants that would work best with your metabolism. So you get a lot less of the go on, doesn't work, taper off. Go on, doesn't work, a lot less lab rat, a lot more precision, you know, dialing in what it is that, you know, needs to, yeah. So I'd say, I'd say spend a couple hundred bucks, get the DNA test and um, find something that really does. Cause you hear people who have depression or another illness say, you know, the problem with the meds is I don't feel bad. I don't feel good. I don't feel anything. That's the problem. So they need to change a medication and it's a delicate balance. Yeah. And you're right because you can be, you can medicate someone and they don't feel good, bad or indifferent. They just feel yeah. like I they're was the, the day before I took this medication. Yeah. They're still here. Yes. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's not, it's not working. So yeah. So you, it's, you know, it's not a, precise science. I mean, it's not, it's an art and a science. It's, it's, I've got a friend who most of the time her medication works pretty well and she's pretty much on an even keel, but she called me last week and she was distraught and depressed and she had changed psychiatrists and they tweaked her medication a bit and it wasn't, I could tell it wasn't working. So she, I said, you need to go back to them and ask them, look, tell us, you know, whatever I was on last time was working really well. This is not, we need to go back to whatever medication she was on previously. Here, I'll tell you what worries me in terms of mental health. In the pandemic, my belief is you've got a lot of neuronormal, neurotypical people who've never been depressed. And now they're in the middle of this pandemic and their world has been turned upside down. So they may be what they call situationally depressed. They're depressed about the pandemic and the uncertainty and the anger and the whatever. But if they've never been depressed, they may not know why they feel the way they do. Why can't I get out of bed in the morning? Uh, and so I've been doing podcast after podcast after podcast, teaching normal people what people with mental illness do every day to get out of bed in the morning and put one foot in front of the other. Because with somebody, as somebody with two mental illnesses, getting out of bed every morning is it's a bit of a challenge and. I wake up in an uncertain world every day, whether it's a pandemic or not. So I've been teaching them what's called a self-care plan and some other techniques to be able to move forward in the day. Things that mentally ill people do, if you're high functioning and you're, you're handling it as well as possible, things you do over and over, a routine is very important. Go to bed same time, get up same time, eat same time, exercise same time. You have to control the things you can control is really what it's all about. Plus I do diet, I'm on the keto diet and I do intermittent fasting. I had 22 hours between my last two meals. Uh, good night sleep is restorative. I meditate twice a day. I meditated before I came on here. And it's a guided meditation called the catnapper. And medication, I'm on a small amount of medication that my doctor 
prescribed it. And fortunately, I was in the one third of the people who it really works well. By the third week, I had a thought I hadn't had since high school, which was, I love my life. Now, I have a good life anyway, but I hadn't had that <laughs> thought since I was 18. So and my second thought was, what was I waiting for to get on the medication? I waited till I was 60, for God's sakes. But anyway, that's, that's basically, that, what worries me is neuronormal people who are now struggling with something they may not recognize. And you know, here's the thing about the pandemic that I think is really mentally challenging. A friend of mine goes, think of it this way, Frank. If I said to you, can you run 20 miles? Yes, I, it's not gonna be in record time, but I bet I could do it. And then he said, you know why you could do it? Because about mile 15, you're thinking, okay, I got five to go, I can do this. Now, what if I said to you, run? Well, how far am I going? Don't know. When can I stop? <laughs> not sure. That's kind of how the pandemic is. When 9-11 happened on one day, and we began to rebuild. Last recession, over about a week or so, we began to rebuild. This thing, you know, it peaks, it valley, surge, it's not Christmas, Thanksgiving. We have no idea when things are going to level out or get anywhere near back to normal. And I think that is really hard on people's mental health. And actually, that was, a, that was a good point because I was actually going to ask you about that because I know you mentioned um, the three-legged stool, right? And it seems during this pandemic, a lot of people are going to ex be experiencing two out, of, two out of the three just because of what they're going through. As you mentioned, su su situational depression, right? Like we're being told to distance ourselves. <laughs> yes, social right? isolation, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And then we're being told to experience these things and someone let's say for example like you and i we would hang out every friday every saturday we grab a yeah. drink whatever the case is now right now that has been taken away and we're told that you can't see frank frank can't see you keep your distance to your point now we're thinking okay am i going to be all right because now we're having the not for the first time we're having those kind of thoughts that we didn't yeah. have before 2020. and you know we had a stimulus and then a second and then there's a long period in there where we weren't getting the extra unemployment, you know, the eviction moratorium expired. Fortunately, they passed another stimulus, not perfect, but at least something. So not only are they worried about their mental and physical health, how am I gonna pay the bills? And are my, my kids and I gonna get evicted? Uh, you know, it's fortunately, it looks like we're gonna get another stimulus here shortly with the new administration. But yeah, it's a lot See, for people like me. I have a friend who has PTSD. And he said, Frank, when they said you have to stay home and you can't see anybody, I'm like, woohoo! <laughs> you mean I gotta stay home and I can't see anybody? Yes! Because going out, you know, he gets rattled uh, sometimes, has a, a service dog that knows when he's beginning to get rattled, you know, to calm him. But a lot of my mentally ill friends are like, I have to stay home? What a shame. Uh, I, I work from home anyway, so it's not a big change for me. So I don't, I don't mind, you know, there's a difference between alone and lonely. And I worked on my own as a comic for so long by myself that I, it's, you know, it's not a big deal, but you're right. There are people who that social isolation could be just enough to kick them over the edge. Yeah. Yeah. Any, um, final words, Frank, before we wrap today? Yes. Um, if you see something, say something. Now, you now know the signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide. And you know that eight out of 10 people are ambivalent, nine out of 10 give hints. So you know 
pretty much anybody you spoke to about this, if you heard them say something you thought was dangerous, wants you to say that. You know, they're, not, they're probably not going to harsh on you for asking. They're probably going to be quite relieved. So I would say, yeah, keep, keep your eyes on your friends, ears open, look for those signs and symptoms. And if you hear something, always go with your gut, your intuition. If you walk by somebody and think, I think he's depressed. There's a reason your brain tossed that up to you. Maybe it's something you picked up unconsciously. So if you see something, say something, because silence kills. And I will agree. What I have done is this year, I made a promise to myself over the last month or so that every, every about every week, at least once a week, I'm going to check in with my friends saying, how you're doing? Is everything okay? Just thinking about you, things like that. Just let them know that they're on my mind because I think the check-in will help because you don't know, especially during these times where we're spending less time around people. Yeah, and all you're, all you're, all you're trying to do and all I try to do when I speak is planning, you know, it's not, it's not, we're not clinicians, it's not therapy. We're just planting seeds of hope. Yes, somebody does care if I'm, I'm not here tomorrow. 